How many of you Texas Ranger fans out there remember the name Julio Franco? I remember that name. I know he played for a few different teams in Texas, but I know he had some good years at Texas. And I, I, I don't keep up with baseball as much now as I used to, but I read recently where he just recently retired. Did y'all know that? 2007 at the age of 49. And, uh, and he, uh, you know, he was, he was there for, for quite some time because I remember him growing up and playing city league ball. And uh, here's his batting stance here. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But, but when, when, when I was young in city league, a lot of my friends and I, we often used to, to mimic the batting stances that we would see on TV of, of the Major League Baseball players. And, and to us, there was no batting stance cooler than Julio Franco's. Look at that stance. I mean, that just looks cool. And we just wanted to mimic that exactly. So when we were in practice, you know, our coaches would always get on to us because we'd come up there and they'd be like, what are you doing, you know? What is that? And be like, it's Julio Franco. works for him. So uh, we, we would often mimic these stances, and his was one that was mimicked a lot. But here's what we found out. Even though the batting stance looked cool, and it worked for Julio Franco, it didn't work for us. And in the games, it resulted in us striking out more than making contact with the ball. Now, fortunately, I had some good coaches who would discourage us from mimicking batting stances like this and teach us the most effective way to hold the bat and swing the bat and make contact with the ball. But my point here is this. There are some examples out there that we shouldn't be following, right? Whether it be on TV or in the movies or an advertisement, there are certain examples that people are following that do not result in joy. Society is always putting forth examples for us. They're telling us what's hip, what looks good, what tastes good, what feels good. And, and when you walk down the aisles at Walmart, you see posters of childhood stars that are appealing to our kids. There are pictures on their, on their clothes that they buy. People magazines are flying off the shelves because people want to be in the know on what's going on in the lives of the rich and famous. Some people are even living their lives through these people. And, and a lot of people are following the example that's being put forth because there's an implied message as society puts forth these examples, and it's this, that following these examples will lead to joy. We're continuing our series this morning in Philippians, and if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30 this morning. And so far, we've just kind of a, a, a summary of what we've talked about so far. We've talked about the fact that Paul, he's writing from prison, and he's writing about how to experience joy. And we've, we've learned that the, he's talked about how to experience joy through relationships, during times of uncertainty, by living worthy, by being unified, by following Christ's example of humility. And you'll remember last week we talked about how to experience joy through obedience. Well, today, this morning, we're going to discuss how to experience joy through following the right examples. How to experience joy through the right example. As we've discussed in the past, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding Paul and his ministry, isn't there? 
He's in prison, and even though in previous passages he's talked about the fact that he's, he's pretty sure he's going to be released at some time, he's not sure when that's going to be. And he's not sure when he's going to get to see the Philippians again. So in this passage this morning, Paul shares with them that although he's, he's uncertain when he'll be with them again, he hopes in his absence to send two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And not only that, Paul doesn't all, only uh, just tell them that they're going to come. He also takes time to explain in this passage the great characteristics of these two men, and he points to them as great examples of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these two great examples of, uh, for us of what it means to follow Christ. So although society is continually putting forth these bad examples, what Paul does for us this morning in this passage is provide us with a different picture of what we should look for in a role model. So let's look at it. First he says, follow the example of Timothy. Follow the example of Timothy. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. So Paul's in prison. He's unsure when he's going to see the Christians at Philippi again. So in his place, he decides to send the next best thing, which is Timothy. Timothy, for those of y'all that don't know, he was a, a native of, of a place called Lystra. And he was thought to be a, a convert of Paul's during Paul's first missionary journey through Lystra. And, and over time, Paul becomes very fond of Timothy. In fact, Timothy becomes Paul's right-hand man, which he's seen here in, in, in the book of Philippians. And Timothy was also no stranger to the Philippians. In fact, he is with Paul when Paul first plants the church in Philippi. And, and so, so he's been there with Paul all this time, all the time Paul's had a connection with the, with the Christians at Philippi. And Paul here points to Timothy as an example. So let's look at some of the characteristics that Paul shows of Timothy that should be true of us. First, he shows this. Timothy has a genuine interest in the welfare of others. He has a genuine interest in the welfare of others. Before we explain this point, let me ask you this question. Do you think this is important to Paul? Being concerned for others, putting others before ourselves? I mean, he's mentioned that more than a few times in this book, hasn't he? In Philippians 1.17, Paul is critical of those preachers who have the right message, but the wrong motive. They were preaching out of selfishness, and they were letting selfishness rule and looking to their own agendas in ministry. In Philippians 2.3, when Paul is giving uh, the, the Philippians the steps to follow to uh, be unified, he tells them in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And then remember in the passage following that one, he points to Christ, doesn't he? And he looks at the great humility that Christ showed and how he's a great model for us. And Paul points to him. And here, he looks at Timothy. And notice in verse 20, he shows that Timothy has no selfish nor ulterior motives in ministry, but takes a genuine interest in those he ministered to. Verse 20. 
Paul says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Why does Paul continually stress selfless service? I believe it's for this reason. I believe it's because it's what's needed most in our churches, but what is seen the least in God's people. Paul even makes that point here. He says, I have no one else like Timothy, for everyone looks out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Your toes sore? It's kind of where we are today, isn't it? The reason the gospel, I believe, is not making the impact that it should in our world is because there are too many, like those in Paul's day, looking out for their own interest when it comes to the church and when it comes to Christian ministry, and too few like Timothy. We are in desperate need of genuine servants in ministry and in our churches. A while back, I was sitting at home, just relaxing on a weekend, and, and I get a knock at the door, and I walk to the door, and I notice I don't know the person standing at my door. So what is my first thinking? It's a salesman, right? Somebody's trying to sell me something, and it was. And it was this young guy, and he was trying to sell me magazines. And he had all this list of magazines and everything. And I, I cut him off before we got too far into it, not to be mean, but just to let him know, you know, man, I don't want you to go through all of that because I really don't read that many magazines. The only time I do is when I'm waiting to get my hair cut or at the doctor's office, and they're normally about two years late, you know. I'm like, wow, I knew that. Um, but, but he was trying to sell me magazines. And even after me sharing with him that I, I didn't read magazines all that much, he continued to try to sell them to me. And he shared with me, hey, if I sell this certain amount of magazines, I'll get to go on a trip and get to travel and, and see the world. And I was like, okay. I mean, the, the way I kind of received that sales pitch was, you know, he wasn't really concerned with me buying something that, that I would use. He just wanted me to buy a magazine so that he could go and travel and see the world. And I was thinking to myself, well, good luck with that pitch, man. Because if you don't appeal to, to your, your customer, if you, if you show that you're more just concerned about your needs and not theirs, you're not going to sell very many magazines. Well, on the same lines, for the gospel to make an impact in our world, it's going to have to be advanced by selfless servants, by those who have a genuine interest in the welfare of others. Is that a description of you? Are you genuinely concerned for others? Second, Timothy's sole desire is to be faithful. His sole desire is to be faithful, verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. The, the, the phrase proven worth means just proof after testing. When used of Timothy, it, it, what he's, Paul is showing here is that Timothy has proven character. As I said earlier, Timothy was with Paul when Paul first planted the church at Philippi, so the Christians in this city were well acquainted with Timothy, and they respected him. But I want you to understand something. Timothy did not gain this respect overnight. See, they had seen Timothy 
year after year after year follow Paul faithfully and give, his, give of himself faithfully to Christ. So he had proven worthy years after years. He had shown to be faithful, and they had taken notice. When Leslie and I were in seminary, we had our fair share of car problems. And we finally got tired of our car sitting in the shop. We wanted to actually drive it. So uh, we decided to stretch ourselves and buy a more uh, newer, more dependable vehicle in hopes that we could pay it off and maybe have it five or so, five or ten years without having any major problems. Well, the first couple of years, we didn't have any problems with the car. But you know what? That didn't really impress me much. I wasn't really singing the, the praise of, of our vehicle because I, I expected that. It's a new vehicle. It's supposed to last the first few years. But you know, we'll have it paid off in March. And the, the, the more and more the years pass by, especially after March, without any major problems, you know what? I'm going to begin to appreciate the car more and more. And I'm going to begin to sing its praises more and more because only through being tested in that way will the car prove to me to be worthwhile. And that's the case with Timothy. Timothy had proven his worth over the years. Now, no, that wasn't the case with everybody who followed Paul, was it? 2 Timothy 4, we learn about a character named Demas. Now, at one time, Demas did follow with Paul. He had left his home and his family and his friends, and he went out to follow Paul. But this is what is told of Demas in, in verse 10, 2 Timothy 4. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and has gone back to Thessalonica. When I was involved in college ministry, <clears throat> I had a few Demases that I, that I dealt with. I had one guy in particular, he showed up one Sunday, and man, he's just gun-ho, you know? He's like, man, I'm with you, I'm, I'm on board with where you're going, and I'm just fired up, I'm ready to get involved. And I was excited, you know? I was thinking, man, this guy, I'm going to build a ministry around this guy. Well, he was there about two or three weeks, and then gone like two months. And, uh, you know, I didn't think much of it. I thought, well, he's probably gone to another church. But then he comes back. And he's like, man, I'm sorry. I, I, I uh, you know, I just got kind of sidetracked. I'm back on board now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buckle down. And I'm going to be with you. Well, he was there for a little bit. And then he was gone another two or three months or more. And it got to the point where this person had no credibility with me because he had proven time and time again to be unreliable and unfaithful. It's not the case with Timothy. Timothy was the exact opposite. He had been with Paul through thick and thin years after years and continued to prove time and time again to be a faithful and dependable servant of the Lord. Let me encourage you to do something. When you're reading through the, 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 uh, the ministry of Paul in the book of Acts, and when you're reading through Paul's letters, let me encourage you, look for Timothy. Let me tell you what you're going to find. You're going to find Timothy most of the time right there with Paul in ministry, being left by Paul in a particular area to do ministry, or being sent out by Paul to a particular area to do ministry. The scriptures are just always portraying Timothy as a faithful follower of the Lord. And because that's the case, because that's the case, Paul thought highly of Timothy. And because that's the case, the churches received Timothy 
openly. They were glad when he came because he had proven his worth. You know, a draw today in ministry <clears throat> is to emphasize numbers and results. You know, how well you're doing as a church depends upon what, what do the numbers say. Numbers say everything, right? And there's this overemphasis on success. But what's been de-emphasized is faithfulness. I mean, now, ministers will say, well, I, you know, I don't have any problem with faithfulness. I'm all for faithfulness. But it's not even being mentioned. It's not even in the conversation. When, when pastors have a conversation, here's normally how it goes. Because I've had a lot of them. They ask, where do you serve? What are you running in worship? And what are you running in small group or, or Sunday school? Had a guy stop by not too long ago from another ministry, and the first question he asked me was, are you growing? And he wasn't talking spiritually, he was talking numerically. Now, I'm not saying we should not look at those numbers, or at times ask those questions, but what I am saying is this, what about being faithful? Where is that question being asked? Why aren't we asking the question, are you faithfully doing what God has called you to do as individuals and as a church? Although Timothy was successful in ministry, he was not driven by success. His sole desire was to be faithful. James Dobson, I don't have it up here, but, but he said this. I love this quote. God does not call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. You want to be remembered for something? You want to be known and remembered for something? Be known and remembered <clears throat> for being faithful. Number three, Timothy's presence makes a difference. His presence makes a difference. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him to you just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So, in this text here, it clearly reveals Timothy's importance to Paul and the work of the gospel. Paul is clear he needed Timothy a little while longer with him. Now, we're not told specifically why, but we do know this, that Timothy uniquely sustained Paul in this difficult time in his ministry. And he didn't want to hardly let loose of him. But Paul also knew that Timothy was exactly who the Christians at Philippi needed as well. So with Timothy leaving, something was going to be greatly amiss in the life of Paul, but something was going to be greatly added to the ministry at Philippi. In other words, Timothy's life, his presence, makes a significant difference in ministry. In team sports, you often have one of three players. The first one is the one who's a hindrance to the team. <clears throat> the one who brings the team down by his presence, by his play. We know a few of those in professional sports, don't we? Cowboys have had a few of them. Um, so that, there's that. And we, and, and we also have those in our churches, don't we? We'll just be honest. The second group are those who don't make an, don't make an impact one way or another. Their purpose is just kind of keeping the bench warm. And we have a few of those. But then there's a third group, and those are the playmakers, the game changers, the difference makers. 
And that's what Timothy is. Timothy is a difference maker. When he shows up, something happens. When he's gone, there's something, there is a gaping hole left in his absence. But when he goes somewhere, wherever he goes, there is something greatly added to the ministry because he's a difference maker. What a great example for us as followers of Christ. What a great role model for us to strive and to be like. I had uh, one of those leaders that came to mind when we were at Fort Smith. Uh, when I was making this point, he came to mind when I was making this point because he truly was a Timothy. I mean, he was always available. Even if you didn't need him, he was available. And uh, he was our IT guy. He did our sound. He led a men's morning uh, Bible study accountability group. He was one of our leaders. And, and when he was out a Sunday, well, you knew it. Primarily because you had to get two or three people to do the job he did every Sunday. But his presence was felt. Now, don't, don't think that I'm saying here that you should just overcommit yourself to everything. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. You should be plugged in to the church in such a way that if you were out of the equation, if you were absent, there would be something amiss at this church. A great question to ask yourself is this. What would be missing from the church in my absence? There should be something. Your presence should be felt here. Paul not only holds up Timothy as an example, he also looks to Epaphroditus. Say that five times fast. Follow the example of Epaphroditus. Let's look at verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. He is the person the the Philippians sent while uh, Paul was in jail at Rome. And uh, he came to Paul for several different reasons. Here are the reasons Epaphroditus came to Rome. Number one, he came to Paul to bring a message of the church's love for Paul. That was one reason. Second, he came to Paul to bring a gift to Paul from the church, some sort of monetary gift, people think. And the third reason Epaphroditus came to Paul is to just be with him, to come alongside him, to be with him, to to, uh, minister alongside him and to care for him and to provide comfort for Paul. So, so Epaphroditus came for this reason, and, and the character and the actions of Epaphroditus don't go unnoticed by Paul. Notice the characteristics Paul gives of Epaphroditus, which should also be true of us. Number one, he is committed. Epaphroditus is committed. <clears throat> Verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now, if Paul just called Epaphroditus a brother, we would probably assume that he was no more than than we are to Paul, just a fellow Christian. But notice the phrases he uses about Epaphroditus. He is a fellow worker and fellow soldier. In other words, Epaphroditus is a committed Christian who faithfully serves alongside Paul. Now, let's be honest. In our world today, commitment 
is difficult for us, isn't it? I mean, we live in a world of just non-committalism. A recent survey showed that uh, the largest group polled when it came to religious affiliation were those with no religious affiliation. And it's not because they're, they're angry with organized religion. They're just kind of hesitant about committing to any one religious group. It's this non-committalism. Even those who have committed to Christ oftentimes have, have uh, difficulty committing any further than that to his church and to his people. Not, not Epaphroditus. Not true of him. He was committed to Christ, to Christ's church and to his people, so much so that he left the comforts of his home to be with Paul in Rome. Listen, if you've made a commitment to Christ today, what should flow out of that is a further commitment to his church and to his people. It should just naturally flow from your commitment to Christ. What we need in our churches is not more just, just more fellow believers, fellow Christians. We need fellow workers and fellow soldiers in our church for the cause of Christ. Second, Epaphroditus has a heart for people. He has a heart for people, verse 26 through 28. For he longs for you all and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me. To spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So while with Paul, Epaphroditus gets deathly ill. To the, I mean, he's on the verge of death, and only by God's grace, Paul says, does he, does he pull out of it? And in response, Epaphroditus becomes distressed, not over his situation, not because he was worried about what was going to happen to him, but while he was sick, the church at Philippi were very worried, like we would be if we sent out one of our own. They were very distressed. And so Epaphroditus becomes worried about the distress of the, the Christians at Philippi. So he begins to have this longing to be back with them. And here's what Paul says. Paul says here, look, <clears throat> I'm very glad that you've sent Epaphroditus to me. And he's been a great partner in ministry, and he's been right here alongside me. But he has a deep longing for you, and you for him. So, so what I want to do is I want to send him back to you so that your joy will be restored. And knowing that your joy is restored makes me rejoice. So here we see Epaphroditus has a heart for the Christians at Philippi, but so does Paul, doesn't he? Epaphroditus proves he has a heart for them by being distressed over their distress. But Paul shows his heart for the Christians at Philippi because he is, he is worried, he is thankful for the fact that Epaphroditus pulls out of this, this uh, sickness. But he also has a longing for Epaphroditus to be back with the Christians at Philippi. So we see here, they both have a deep, Longing for God's people. They have a heart for God's people. And this should be true of us today. We should have a heart for the people of God like Epaphroditus and like Paul. Third, Epaphroditus has a sacrificial spirit. This just means that he viewed the work of Christ to be more important than his own life. He believed the work of Christ to be more important than his own life. Verse 29. 
Paul says, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. So the reason why the Philippians at, at Philippi couldn't give him the help that Epaphroditus did is because Epaphroditus went to be with Paul. They couldn't all go, but Epaphroditus went as their representative. And here, Paul is holding up Epaphroditus as an example to emulate for the Christians, for the Christians here at, at Philippi. He says he risked his life for the sake of Christ. And in response, you know what Paul calls the church to do? Welcome him with open arms. And he goes beyond that. He also says, and honor men like Epaphroditus who put their life on the line and who sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. You know, we often think of risk as being just all bad, don't we? Anything that's risky can't be a good thing. And sometimes we're right. Like, for example, when I was growing up and playing ball and the ball rolled out into the street, what would I do? I'd run out and get it, even with cars coming. And when my parents saw me do that, they would get really angry. And they wanted me to understand your life is worth more than a $2 ball. It's not worth risking getting hit by a car to go out in the street and retrieve this ball. So that risk was wrong. But there are certain risks that are right. And Paul is clear here that risk is right when it's done for Christ. Now, I'm not talking about something careless. But what I am saying is risk should not keep you from serving Christ and doing what he's called you to do. When Chris and I were first getting ready to go to Nicaragua when I was at Fellowship in Fort Smith, he's the pastor there, we had a guy come up to us and, and uh, he began to kind of share with us, all, he had a list of all these bad things that could happen to us. We're like, thanks, you know, ready to go. <laughs> We've already got the plane ticket. Um, but but he's, he just like spelled out all these different things, all these bad things that could happen. And some of the things he mentioned, I'm like, Man, that could happen to us right here in the U.S. But you know what I told him? I said, you know what? We're going to take precautions on this trip. But I want you to understand that, that the risk, those that you mentioned, are worth taking for this ministry. You know what we do when we take risks for Christ? I don't know what kind of risk coming to mind for you. It could be financial. It could be physical. But you know what happens when we take risks for Christ? We show God how much we value Him. By risking for the cause of Christ, you know what you say to the Lord? You are worthy of my service no matter the cost. And that's what Epaphroditus is saying in him going to Rome and risking his life. And Paul understood it. And Paul called to attention what he was doing. And not only that, he said, value men like him. Honor men like Epaphroditus who view Christ in that way, who take this kind of risk for Christ. So he has a sacrificial spirit. In closing, I want to do this. I want to put all those characteristics back up on the screen. And I want us to look at each one of these for just a moment and focus on these. And here's what I want you to realize. I want you to notice that the characteristics found in Timothy 
and Epaphroditus are also the characteristics of Christ. They're also the characteristics of Christ, are they not? Did Christ have a genuine interest in others? Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Christ's purpose in life was to be faithful, wasn't it? John 4, 34, He says, My food is to do the will of God, the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus' presence makes a difference, doesn't it? I love when John the Baptist first sees Christ. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, Christ has showed up. Everything's different now. His presence makes a difference. Christ is committed, isn't he? Paul mentions that in, in, in the book of Philippians. He says he was obedient. How far was he obedient? To the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ has a heart for people. Matthew 9:36 when Jesus saw the crowds he had compassion on them like no one had ever had compassion before on the lost because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we all know he has a sacrificial spirit, don't we? When face to face with the agony of the cross Jesus cried out to God, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet he followed that statement with, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Showing his sacrificial spirit that he was humbly submitted to the will of the Father. And because the cross was the Father's will, you know what Christ did? He willingly took the cup and drank it meaning he willingly endured betrayal, denial, trial, crucifixion, and the very wrath of God for us to fulfill the will of the Father. And Timothy and Epaphroditus just follow this model. But you know what? Not only did they, but we should as well, shouldn't we? This should be true of us. These characteristics should be seen in us. These characteristics are what it means to be a follower of Christ. Our world is going to continually put forth examples and role models and say that following this pattern is going to result in joy. But God's Word tells us this, that we are to follow Christ and to follow those who are following Christ, and in that following, we will experience joy. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us for settling for less than the best in our lives, and for modeling our lives after people who do not honor you. Help us to resist the temptation of following these bad examples and for buying into the lie that living in this way will uh, lead to joy. Instead, Father, we pray that you would lead us to good examples in our world and from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.